Hey, photographers, welcome to the Boca Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Holritz, and really I'm just here to help you build a sustainable photography business. That certainly means helping you improve your photographic skills and enabling you to become a stronger business owner, but it also means helping you work more efficiently so you don't get burnt out in the long run. We are sponsored by PhotographersEdit.com, custom photo editing for the professional photographer, and Milu.com, that's M-I-I-L-U.com, the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing. All right, let's get into today's episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back for another Boca Podcast episode. And um, not only a brand new guest, but uh, Sam and I have not had the chance, I don't think, to actually meet in person over the years. Sam Hurd is here with me. And Sam, I, I really appreciate you, first of all, just making time for all of us today. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Glad to be here. Uh, glad we can connect for a bit and get to know each other. <laughs> we already kind of had a 10-minute spiel that I kind of wish was recorded. <laughs> I, I know. You know, it's launched. funny. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I've, I've said similar things in, in past interviews as well, almost like, um, if nothing else, record the extra conversation, put it out there as additional content or something, because you're right. There's It's wonderful when conversation just flows naturally. One mm -hmm. of the things that we were actually talking about before we got started recording was um, the fact that you're actually not just a photographer, but a musician. And then you said that that's a creative outlet for you that's been super helpful. Can you expound on that? Yeah, absolutely. My my first passion and hobby was music because I picked up a uh, violin, my, you know, forced by my mother, of course, uh, when I was <laughs> yep. like seven years old, but that translated or, or kind of evolved to, to being a guitarist and then drummer. And then around 16, 17 years old, I started to get really into the music production, engineering and recording side of things, just stuff that I'd write myself uh, to start. And then eventually started recording bands. So I did that for I think I did about 15 records uh, through college, basically, any genre that you can imagine. So it was quite quite an interesting experience. But I was never able to make meaningful money from it once I started uh, photography professionally. And that really took off as far as actual revenue and, and running an actual business. Yeah, uh, music was really squarely put into the hobby category for me. And I've been really grateful over time, you know, now being a photographer for a decade, uh, you know, things go through waves in terms of being inspired just by photography or being sure. really motivated just as a photographer. And in those down times where maybe I'm not as driven uh, in my photography, as far as creativity goes, I've been so grateful to have those already uh, developed skills in music to fill that void and and really uh, let me still exercise my sort of creative muscles and expression and all that, but in a totally different workflow and, and practice. And it, it is sort of shocking. Anybody, I think, that has, especially on the production and engineering side, where you're actually mixing songs with multiple anybody that's done that and done photography um i think it's sh shocking the more i do it the more i realize how it's exactly the same as being a photographer your choice of microphone uh similar to the choice of lens the aperture of your mic the the how iso um the concept of it and what it's doing really relates back to like the the um noise floor of a microphone yeah. and, and balance that with gain and gain staging and all of this stuff is the same uh, it just has different terminology and different ways of operation and i credit music and production uh, in particular to uh, a big 
head start in in my development as a photographer uh, without even realizing that it would be helpful. <laughs> so you mentioned that your mom had you playing the violin. It's funny. I, I have uh, three younger brothers, and we were kind of the quote unquote requirement in, in our family. Um, my parents both being musicians. That was that we played two years of piano. And then we picked an instrument and I ended up playing clarinet into to college and I play a bit of piano and saxophone as well. Nice. Um, my, one of my brothers actually ended up getting his doctorate in violin, but would you Whoa. say that, that, um, is there something, I mean, you look back and kind of laugh at the fact that your mom had you playing violin. Do you think that is a great thing though, for parents to, to expose their kids to or encourage them? Thousand percent. Music? Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. I wish I, I wish you'd started when I was two. Like, yeah, the earlier, the better. And, and honestly, if I could go back and choose the instrument, I would, I would honestly, I would choose the piano mm. uh, simply because the way, you know, songwriting has evolved with computers now, yeah. uh, which wasn't totally obvious, back, yeah. you know, when, when I was that young, if you can play keyboard or the piano really well you can play practically any instrument because you can sample it and play with that the midi data in your in your sequencer and it just unlocks such a huge uh, palette of sounds for you versus the violin and i can noodle around and i understand logically conceptually what i can do on a keyboard Uh, i can noodle and and write and honestly keyboard shows up in a lot of my songwriting but i'm i would have loved to have be classically trained and have that muscle memory. And, you know, I was practicing violin and, and I remember one hour every day, you yep. have to practice one hour every day. <laughs> yep. I'm sure I didn't do that <laughs> nearly as religiously as I'm thinking of now, but also I, but I do remember the arguing and the, the, the hating, the loathing of doing it. Why the question of why? Um, but I would say about, I don't know. Well, honestly, maybe it was around the time I started playing guitar as well. I started to realize the the giant shortcut it provided for me. And once I realized that, like, oh, guitar is an instrument I picked up on my own and I really loved. Violin is informing and creating this giant shortcut in in the process for me. This is where the value is. And I sort of evolved into understanding that. And again, it's played into all other aspects of my life, uh, creatively, I should say. And do you feel like being paid to do something that is creative in nature differentiates uh, the experience for you from something like music, which is just the hobby you're not being compensated for monetarily that you can just go do for quote the fun of it? Totally. It's a different, it's a different way of working when you're constrained by client expectations for Mm. sure. Mm. It is so nice. I mean, I must have hundreds of half-written songs that I loved writing, but also really liked not having to finish them, (laughs) you know, just write that awesome chorus, write that great verse. And, you know, if I'm motivated and and really want to see it through to an end result song, that feels great too. And I've been doing that a lot more recently this year with the, you know, the current state of working from home more and all of that weddings being postponed because I'm primarily a wedding photographer, but um, uh, it's so great to, to have a creative outlet that you can just be what it is. And there's zero pressure expectation. Once money is involved, you know, for me, sometimes constraints are motivating like client deadlines and expectations. And as, as much as I try and find clients and and emphasize that I'm going to do stuff creatively and different and just let me do my thing and it'll all be fine. There's still like a baseline expectation that um, it's just not the same, but there's a a lot of overlap and it's hard to say exactly how money plays into it, but uh, and in terms of how it changes your creative decision-making, but it, it certainly feels freer to, to not have that, uh, attached to music. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny. My, my son actually just went off to university of Tennessee, Knoxville, and he's studying jazz saxophone there and, and has been kind of 
not even coerced, really forced to as part of the the training process, pick up piano as well. And it's made me think about getting back into piano again more proactively for the sake of that outlet that you're talking about. I think it's a really beautiful thing. Um, When it comes to the creative process, it's funny how our motivations are, are driven by different things from person to person. And one of the things that I find fascinating about your uh, your bio, probably the most fascinating thing actually about your Instagram bio is that you are a winner of zero awards. Um, I love <laughs> yes. that. Talk a little bit about how awards have little, if anything, to do with why you do what you do. There's so much we could talk about uh, in terms of specifically the wedding industry and how it positions awards as a thing. There's weird like financial motivations and sketchiness that goes into it. There's legitimate things. There's so many photographers that I, that are friends of mine and I respect, you know, proudly uh, and love and participate in regular, uh, you know, kind of award quarterly awards and all that. So depending on your personality and things, uh, you, you may heavily agree or you may heavily disagree with the more I start talking about awards. But at the end of the day, for me, one of the things I quickly realized in my local market, it's a bit different now than when I got started about 10 years ago, but uh, you know, I would, I would simply Google search because it literally Instagram wasn't like a thing at all. And, and Facebook pages weren't, it was all Google results of, okay, who are the DC wedding photographers? Who are they? Hmm. I would regularly browse the top 10, 20 results and see this, this uh, recurring emphasis on like, Hey, here's my work. Here are all the words. And just one top photographer for the Northeast South area of this city that I live in. It's like, okay, what is this award? At first it fools you into being like, oh, wow, this person's accomplished and they're working a lot and all this. But the more you are exposed to that kind of stuff and the longer you're in the industry, the more you realize like, "Ah, it's, do I really want somebody hiring me for my awards? Even if I'm capable, even if I did win some at some point, like, do I, I don't want people hiring me for that. I want to completely win them over with the content of my work so that we are on the same page that that's it. And and I would venture to guess that the vast majority of photos that are delivered in a full wedding gallery that have the most meaning and emotional connection for my clients and myself would never, ever win anywhere close to an award. <laughs> yeah. So I just, um, okay. So I'm, I'm going on a few different points there, but at the, at the core, what I decided early on was to take whatever those top 10, 20 people were doing, uh, literally write down with pen and paper, the, the recurring themes that I was seeing with all of them and start from the exact opposite approach. Uh, oftentimes that wouldn't work or it would leave me in a very silly, uh, place, but working backwards from there, just, evolved my business in a way that, you know, a lot of times it's, it's right on the money. Like, okay, I have zero awards, but sometimes it's more subtle than that in what you're seeing in my work. That's different. Uh, another way that kind of works its way in when I have client meetings, they always talk about uh, second shooter and um, do we need one? And I, and I always say, no, I vast majority of weddings I shoot. I don't need a second shooter. I talk through them about my approach and why, but that's very unusual. Just me saying, no, I don't do this. I don't, I have second shooters, but I don't recommend them. It makes me stand out in, in my personality and my approach. And just, I think people think a little bit de- deeper about what they're really looking for in a photographer. So the awards are all kind of playing into that. The vast majority of people heavily emphasize their awards and, um, and I don't, and exactly like you stated, it's, it, 
resonates. It sticks out. To wear that badge proudly is strange, but to some people. Uh, anyway, that that's sort of the long, long answer to, to what I'm getting at there. And again, there are some awards where like morally and ethically, I'm like, no, no, this is, this is horrible. But I, I try not to call those out. And just at the end of the day, uh, if it works for you and it motivates you as a photographer, do it and do it proudly. But for me, I think there's... It, it, I, I've survived this long with, without, ha- you don't have to do it as a way to book clients, which I think is also something early on people convince themselves of. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that there are plenty of people that still hold on to that idea. I mean, you go to a conference and you see people literally walking around with medals around their neck. And, and I mean, I, I understand the context of those scenarios, but at the end of the day, I, I think the question that a lot of photographers don't proactively ask themselves is, am I, is my shooting for the client or am I shooting for my ego? Am I shooting for the client or am I shooting for, you know, pat in the back by my photography industry? And and the differentiations or the distinctions aren't made often enough. And it, it feels like, based on the countless conversations I've had with photographers over the last almost 20 years, that it convolutes the process of being a business owner. It frustrates mm-hmm. photographers, in some cases unconsciously or unknowingly anyway. Um, and I, I think that there would be a certain sense of clarity in long-term goals, a clarity in the experience of being a business owner if those distinctions or that distinction was made. Am I shooting for the client? Am I shooting for my fellow photographers? Absolutely. Yep, exactly that. And even if, if you don't participate in awards, social media has a, a lot of the same effects in that way in, in, in terms of clouding your judgment in, in the creative process. I find, because I'm most active on Instagram, and I, I find I have to do things to rein that influence, that, the influence of my, my followers or the, the interaction that I can anticipate getting from one image to the next. I have to rein it in too. Uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to escape and, and stay keep that clarity. Like you said, I love that word that really stood out to me when you said it. Um, keep your clarity and your focus sort of on track. It's it's tough. <laughs> oh, it really uh, is. I yeah. mean, there are a million things going on all around us all the time. And and I'm the first person to raise my hand and say I'm guilty of, of letting myself get distracted. But I think if we, something that we've talked about a lot here on the podcast is this idea of an, an author named Julie Morgenstern is who I got this phrase from, but a big picture view. Do I have an overarching set of goals that drive the the so-called why behind what I am doing as a photographer, as a business owner. And if I've established that big picture view, it enables me to kind of filter the things that I choose to engage with or not engage with, uh, what I choose to do on a day-to-day basis. And it, man, it just makes things much simpler. I'm a bit of a minimalist. Um, and yes. I don't think I could be without being clear about what it is that I'm trying to achieve with my life. And then as a result, as a business owner, and I think that kind of clarity can really make a difference in our lives. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I too, I don't, I don't, I think I have in previous uh, places of my life referred to myself as a minimalist. I used to think that I was, but uh, I look around me right now and there's like a, a billion lenses on my desk and there's clutter <laughs> everywhere. I don't think of myself as a minimalist as much as I am. Uh, I try and operate with incredible efficiency hmm. to do everything, to, to dive in, to buy all the stuff if I can and, and try all the new cameras, lenses, uh, try all the different tools that exist in the world with the assumption that the vast majority of them aren't going to work for me. Uh, and when I find something that does work, it needs to do it very efficiently. And and when I find that that tool or that um, approach and practice and workflow or whatever, I, I lean into it very heavily. Uh, for example, the most uh, 
I think the easiest thing photographers could relate to is my lens choices. I've, I've literally got, I must have a hundred and something lenses around my home. Wow. I really only shoot with like two on a wedding day <laughs> and they're both prime lenses. They're not yep. zoom lenses. Yep. And, you know, it took me going through all these other vast array of choice lens choices to, to realize and, and appreciate the efficiency that a 50 millimeter uh, 1.2 was going to provide for me. And, 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 you know, then I've got all these other lenses to throw in as a bonus lens. If I start to get a lull in the, in the wedding day and want to change things up, but yeah, uh, efficiently efficiency for me is the key term. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I love, I love this conversation already because it's, it is very much just natural and free flowing. Um, for mm-hmm. those of you listening in or used to me following a, a certain line of questions for most of our guests, you may hear me breaking that, that uh, norm here uh, just because this conversation <laughs> is flowing the way it is. But I do want to at least ask a couple of questions that, that we normally do. And one of those, I mean, we're talking about clarity, so I think it fits the conversation. There are thousands and thousands of photographers, wedding photographers in particular, even around the country and, and then beyond. And when it comes to the notion of clarity, particularly in 2020, there is there is so much noise, if you will, literally, figuratively, digital noise, potential clients are exposed to endless potential options for a wedding photographer. How do you distinguish yourself in amidst that noise? Um, the, the way that we phrase it here is brand position. What is your brand position as a wedding photographer in your marketplace? You know, one of the things before it was social media existed, you know, the blog was sort of the engine of most photographers' businesses, certainly for wedding photographers, certainly mine in the early years. And my overall, what's the best way to put this? My, my, my practice in blogging at first was trying to be like everybody else, tell the story of the day. And the storyteller, you know, how many photographers can you go to their website and see literally the word storyteller? Uh, eventually, I, I tried to reject that completely and think mm. and, and kind of characterize my brand as I'm more of a, a, a craftsman. It's, it's a craft. I'm a craftsman. It's just kind of silly because in my head, that immediately makes me think of like a carpenter or something. But <laughs> really, uh, I, I think that's a better word for what I do compared to storytelling telling. And, and to be honest, I think of storytelling uh, in a photographer's sense, especially a wedding photographer, as sort of the uh, sequence of photos, you know, still images that tell a story throughout the entire day, not just a singular photo and what's the story within it. But most wedding photographers, it's really that that experience of blogging 100 photos that start with getting ready and take you through the details and that whole story, kind of the way a wedding album would do. Um, I, I set out to, to stop that. And really, uh, my brand is positioned, I would say, about emphasizing the creative, most strange and least expected portraits of the couple Mm. more than anything else. I I really don't show. I almost never show traditional wedding moments. Maybe the first kiss if it's like a really cool uh, uh, venue, a really cool shot with that for, for whatever reason. But I, I really try and, uh, and, it, and it might turn a lot of people away to, to be like, does he even take pictures of a family? We see no family photos anywhere on his site. You know, uh, that could be a concern, but like, I really try and drive just here are my favorite photos from the day. Here are the, the, times of the day I had the most control, which is almost always when I just have the, the couple together and it's just me and them and I can give them more direction than I typically would the rest of the wedding day. I, I'm very hands-off until it's go time with portraits. And I take that really siloed approach and put it front and center on my website. And as soon as that hooks people, then the very first thing I respond with, if they inquire about a date is, 
great, I'm available, you know, if I am, and, and here's a full gallery. Let's start laying out the, the other side of this um, experience. If you love my work, you probably don't even know why, unless you're a photographer, but something about that I think sticks out and resonates, and uh, I just try and lean into it. I really, on, I, I only show creative portraits from the couple side, which is also like the smallest sliver of the day. <laughs> like I maybe spend 20 minutes with the couple, uh, but I love that. Uh, constraint in terms of having to force my creativity in that limited amount of time, get something totally new, hopefully for me and them out of that, uh, something new visually. And that represents my, my public facing side of the work and, and that's it. And if it, if people love it, they inquire so far, I've, you know, been, been fine. 40 weddings a year, even this year, uh, I've been shooting a ton and it's, it's mostly modified versions of a a typical wedding day. It's, one, two hours. I've done a few full, full length wing where everybody wore masks and had tests and stuff. It was crazy, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's worked. It works, but you do turn away a lot of other people where they're just looking for those classic moments or classic editing style, all that kind of stuff. So Wait, you described this in a way that I really love on the homepage of your website. And for anybody listening in, if you just go to Sam heard H U R D photography.com, you can see this as well. Uh, but you you referred to these photos as photos with a bit of mystery behind them where the circumstances aren't totally obvious and your imagination is left to fill in the story. I love that. Where we have to Did actually... I write that? <laughs> that's pretty good. It sounds pretty good. I wrote that four years ago. No, I did write that. Yeah, I read everything. Um that's all and and so some of that also plays into my uh I'm not a I'm not a professional. I'm hardly even a, a good hobbyist, but my love of magic early on, I love, love, love magic. Mm. My, some of my favorite memories, we, uh, lived close enough to the public library that I would go and rent free movies from there. And there was um, just a ton of old black and white, like the, I, I, I suppose, original sort of uh, Halloween type of movie in terms of um, like uh, Dracula and, and werewolf movies that for whatever reason were really close to magic books that you could also check out. So I, from an early age, was very mystified and just loved the idea of this is a really simple trick. This is so simple. It's yeah. going to make you dumb if you knew what was happening. But the end result would just blow people's minds. And that has totally played into my, my favorite techniques in terms of uh, the photos that I make. A lot of double exposures, prisms, uh, all sorts of things where the end result is just like, this is impossible. This was, There's no way you photographed this. But I did. And, it, and it, I have the raw files and I share them and deconstruct them on Patreon often. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, oftentimes it, it is so silly how easy the, the process of getting there is. I've just um, worked on it a lot to where it seems effortless. And, and anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned your blog earlier and it looks like the most recent post on your blog. It's, it's called Everything You Need to Know to Have a Virtual Wedding in 2020. And you scroll down a couple of images there's this picture. And again, for everybody who's listening in, we'll make sure to link to this in the show notes at bocapodcast.com so you can go take a look. But there's a photo of a couple and they almost appear to be kind of levitating in the middle of the image and the bride has her hands on a, it looks like a yardstick. Can you talk a little bit about that image? Ah, yes. <laughs> so that is a double exposure. Okay. I haven't posted, I think, anywhere yet what's going on there. I keep forgetting to do more of these. The circumstances kind of have to be uh, correct for that to happen, but it is in camera and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. It is so weird to do as a wedding photo. Yeah. I understand. Even hearing you describe that photo, I could see somebody being like, that is the dumbest thing ever for a wedding day. Don't you want somebody that that's so, so disconnected from what 
getting married is about and all that. And um, at the end of the day, I can totally see that the, the case for, for that, like why, what, what is the, the purpose here? But I don't know. I, I just love making people think and making people wonder <laughs> and get excited about uh, the, the story of what was occurring there or the behind the scenes technical aspects or whatever it is. But yeah, I don't want to deconstruct that yet because I haven't anywhere yet. Oh, fair enough. But I mean, this actually begs the question and kind of takes us back to what we were discussing earlier. And it seems as though you do prioritize your client's desires when it comes to photographing them and, and delivering a portfolio of images that they're going to just be stoked about. But you know, we also have this artistic side, and and how do you how do you balance that? How do you balance being able 100%. to? Actually- yes, yeah. The I I think in one of the things uh, I've talked a little bit uh, on my own podcast about with my my friend Nathan, who's also a wedding photographer. I love that this. I f- truly feel that this is a service industry. I am I am a vendor. They deserve the client. The the key is finding clients that want to, you to uh, push yourself. Uh, creatively, but but still know at the end of the day that their priorities without stuff that they don't even know that they want are things that I'm prioritizing. A lot of times like family photos, I've had clients say like, like you know, we, we really don't want any family photos. And hmm. when it comes time to, to, you know, right after the ceremony, when their parents are standing right next to them and it's like, let's, do you want to do a family photo? And then they say yes. In that moment, then it's like, yes, good. I'm glad I nudged them a little bit on that. Just bringing my experience and trying to balance this whole crazy concept of levitating photos, you know, that, that have parts of people disappearing against classic moments of stuff that I think they're really going to value later. Um, yeah, I try and balance all of that. And my priorities, I tell people when I'm actively photographing them, my feelings are absolutely never hurt. If, if I am getting excited about a photo and want to like take you guys out for something because the light is cool, but you're, you you want to stay talking to your friends and family because you just feel really invested in that mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Go for it. That's awesome. I've set up so many pictures where I was like, this is going to be amazing. And then there, it just didn't happen. And you just have to let that go. And and that's one of the key things that I had to learn early on. Like you just have to let those things go if it wasn't meant to be. And that's fine. They need to experience their day outside of just the, the crazy photos that you're going to make for them. Yeah. I, it seems like photographers many times, um, again, whether it's conscious or subconscious, and this has certainly been the way I think for, for years, even it, it's the day almost becomes about them and these portfolio images that they can capture versus, as you pointed out earlier, the significance of serving the client being the primary focus. And it, it, I mean, it is their wedding day. If they want to do what they want to do, we got to let that go and set our ego aside and, 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 just let it be and then take advantage of the opportunity to be able to, to, to be, get creative in a different way. Not just this one thing that we had in our head. Yeah. And I've worked really hard to um, operate so efficiently that there's almost always uh, time left over. Okay. So, you know, almost virtually everybody carves out a little bit of like photo time, whether it be the first look or just some pictures of the two of them for whatever. And I, I try and always leave room so that if an hour later, the light is way better. Uh, I can come to them and be like, Hey guys, do you, do you want to take advantage of this? And they're still excited. They don't feel drained. Like we just shot for two hours straight yeah. and, and photos are done. We're done with photos. Yep. Like there's always headroom. It's always faster than they think it's going to be. Mm. And so that does leave, uh, some wiggle room for me to bring them out for a night photo and stuff that I, I really love doing. So well, um, I, yeah, there are so many different directions we can go in our conversation. Um, but I, I want to eventually get to 
what will be kind of our primary topic for the day and, and diversifying income as photographers. Before I do that, though, you strike me as an extremely thoughtful, kind of introspective individual. And so I'm particularly curious about your answer to the most impactful, um, well, it, really the genre doesn't matter, the most impactful book or say two or three books that have just you you yeah. read it and you you just can't help but smile or get up and just get super excited because it's been inspirational in some way. What comes to mind? <laughs> oh, a book that I jumped up and had to honestly. Uh, there's a book called I and I want to get the title right, so I'm going to Google it while I say it just to confirm. It's called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Okay, um, you to be rich. Yeah, that's literally the website name as well. I believe it started um, as a just a blog. It's actually about setting you up uh, financially for success, but in a way that is very aware and cognizant of the fact that money doesn't actually enrich your life. Hmm. And he's got so many fantastic tools in terms of ideas of creating efficiency for, for literal things like credit cards and how you should siphon off money for savings and just positioning yourself with workflows that are going to be optimized and accumulate your wealth over time, but also balancing that against the reality of, you know, you don't need to save and scrimp every single penny right now for retirement in 50 years. You also are living now and, and how you can free yourself from the stress and anxiety of, of money. If you have a, a thoughtful budget, or at least again, these kind of workflows and, and habits in place that position you to have money for things that you want now, uh, or in the medium future or the long-term future, that book, totally changed my life. Huh. Uh, if, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. And I, so the first book I read was literally like, here, I wrote this whole thing in a blog, but I'm making it in book form. I think he's iterated a few more releases yes. over the past decade. And I'm not sure if they're better or worse or, or different, but it, yeah. I R- love Ramit Sethi is, is the yeah, uh, author is. Yeah. and the subtitles, no guilt, no excuses, no BS, just a six week program that works. We'll, we'll link to that. Ugh. No, that sounds gross. That, I hate, I hate that. Does, yeah, that is not at all what is in his original book, at least. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we'll, we'll maybe even try to find, uh, and Haley produces our show. Haley can maybe try to find the original version to link to as well. We'll put that in the show notes for anybody who's cool. curious. But I, I think, you know, I mean, in all seriousness, there it, it's, it's wonderful. I actually have a couple of books on my reading list currently specifically to do with finance. Um, I didn't, I didn't really have any perspective when it came to managing finances as a business owner. Um, And it it was a tough and kind of a long lesson learned. Uh, And that would certainly be the thing that I would encourage any, particularly new photographers to go back and just, or not go back, but just to begin investing time in is learning how to more effectively manage their, their finances. And so I'm really curious about this book, actually, I'm going to have to maybe get a copy of it myself. Thanks for the share. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, from what I recall, it it heavily focuses on on personal finance. It's not specific to, uh, you know, people that run small businesses or I think if anything, it trends a little more toward the, uh, traditional, you have a paycheck and for access to a 401k and things like that, which I had at the time, my first job, gratefully out of college was, as a professional photographer, salaried, um, shooting uh, press conferences and things like this in, in downtown DC. And so um, anyway, we, I'm, we, I'm happy to talk business too, if you want, but that's the number one book that stood out to me as soon as you started asking the question, for sure. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. By the way, for everybody listening in, if you're curious, some of the most popular recommendations, book recommendations that we've had in the podcast thus far, if you just go to Boca, B-O-K-E-H, bookshelf.com, Haley's put together 
a really wonderful collection categorized um, if you're looking for something good to read. And certainly we'll put this in the show notes uh, for this episode. But let me go ahead and jump, Sam, to our, our primary topic, because I know just based on our conversation so far that we can go really deep even with this. Let's talk about diversification of income, which may sound a little kind of hoity-toity for, for some. They're like, I just want to be a photographer. Uh, so maybe this is a bit rhetorical in nature, but why, why even should photographers think about diversifying income? Why not just go all in on the photography business? I know I'm not a good multitasker um, and yeah. probably a lot of <laughs> photographers would feel similarly, but what's your thought on this? Why, why should we even consider it? Well, for me, it was fear driven, honestly. Like I mentioned, I, my first job uh, as a photographer was salaried. So I had this predictable recurring source of income. I knew how much I was going to make every month and I knew how much I could afford based on that. Uh, however, once I started shooting weddings and I realized like, okay, I'm making as much shooting weddings as I am uh, with my salary job, literally the exact same amount. And then it started to become even more. Mm. I was like, okay, so I, by necessity, I'm starting to travel so much that I know I'm going to have to leave my salary job. I can't be there nine to five shooting these events. I, I need to be traveling more to take advantage of opportunities that are starting to pop up. Uh, but now I'm terrified because I have this unpredictable, you know, seasonal income right. that I, but I'm used to essentially two X the standard of living. I, I, I you know, if I was making $50,000 at the press club, I'm making at least that, but, but even if I'm making that or more in my uh, standalone business as a photographer, as soon as I remove my salary job, which would happen instantly, you know, you're either working for them or you're not, that's a huge shift in, in life change perspective. And I hated, I was terrified of the idea. All my revenue was hinged on, uh, wedding clients. Mm. And so, uh, I started figuring out, uh, other things that still actively as a photographer is the primary creating point, uh, how I could leverage these photos and what I was doing into other things, uh, like teaching, like workshops and, um, eventually presets, online education, uh, selling uh, photos to stock photography sites, uh, selling my time to other people. You know, when I was about, I guess I was three years into shooting weddings when I left the press club full time and, and did full-time wedding photography in my own business. And, you know, I had gotten to shoot teaching three or four workshops in a year at that point. And that was enough of a buffer that I felt, you know, I could do this transition where I was immediately cut off from access to my salary, <laughs> yeah. uh, but not, not in a way that was, you know, suddenly I'm without that extra $50,000. I was making an extra 10, $15,000 teaching workshops. So it softened the blow. And um, the wedding business is incredibly, you know, you go through cycles of downtimes, not just the industry as a whole, but you as an individual. Uh, I've always been kind of str strangely fearful that one year I'm going to get 200 inquiries a day, but they're all going to be for June 15th. <laughs> and, I, and I will have been booked. Yeah. Like they're just by the numbers, there is going to be a year where you get more inquiries for dates that you were less available for just because. And um, you want to have other uh, sources of diversified revenue that are outside of those market forces uh, that may be you know, um, affected by market forces of their own in terms of what section of the industry they exist in. You know, Workshops go through cycles, presets, same thing, where they get oversaturated, they die out, they kind of come back, whatever. Um, but at least they are kind of on different frequencies uh, compared to one another. So it just helps everything kind of ride a lot smoother. Am I painting the right picture there? <laughs> no, I, I think so. It's it's lending perspective. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm one who is also diversifying my so-called portfolio, if you will, in some cases, literally. Um, during 
the last six months where business was slower elsewhere for me, I spent time and am continuing to spend time learning how to day trade in the, in the stock market. And you know, for, for me, so much of, of what I do in business is about time. And part of that is just for me, actually what you were alluding to earlier, efficiency, being able to make, not, not become a, a uber rich individual, but to make a good living within a relatively short amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that being said, day trading is one of those things where I can literally spend an hour a day, um, make a, a significant income actually, um, if I, if I do well at it and, and it's not going to interfere with my other business ventures. So all that to say, I'm, I'm, I have my, uh, my efforts spread into three or four different streams of income. And so I, I get the thought process, but it was good to have your perspective to kind of introduce the topic. And, and I'd be curious too, because, you know, you mentioned workshops and we'll get to the various ways that you're generating revenue at this point for your business, for your life. But um, workshops, education is kind of the de facto thing that photographers immediately go to these days. And it's just, it's almost like a, a has been really a trend, the thing, the end thing to do. I'm yeah. curious if you can comment on, before we get into types of income or streams of income, do you, do you kind of filter those possibilities through particular criteria for deciding why does this work for me and my business and my life? I don't know. I mean, I try literally any idea uh, at least once just to see what it's about and see if there's something I wasn't appreciating about it. At workshops, I would say, sort of fall into that category. The way that I started doing those uh, was simply um, kind of blogging with enough or maybe it was my poor writing or ability to explain things at the time. But the, the particular technique uh, that I was excited about uh, early on was prisming. Hmm. shooting through a glass prism yeah. and nobody had really done it in uh, the exact piece of glass, the literal prism that I was using at the time. And I, again, again, the, the maybe the poor writing in my blog post where I just wasn't quite as descriptive as I could have been, or I don't know what led to a ton of questions and people just asking like, Oh, can you just come to my city and teach a workshop? I'm in a photography group. My first workshop was actually in Santiago, Chile, because uh, wow. I had a friend who's an expat, a friend of mine that was in a Flickr group uh, for photography photographers at the time. And she had moved to Chile and she's like, they're, they're hungry for outside perspectives. You know, she literally brought the idea of an engagement session to the the Chilean market at the time. They just didn't do them and wedding wedding albums and all this. And she was like, yeah, you know, I keep talking about my American friends. They want to know more about this prisming thing. They speak Spanish. So we'll get to a translator, but they want to see it hands-on. I did my first workshop. And once I did that one, I got more questions uh, from other people and, and it just kind of built its own thing. And I figured, you know, I'll try anything once or twice just to see if it was also fulfilling for myself and if I was excited and enjoyed them. And um, a lot of it just comes from trying things and then seeing if it results in um, a, a positive, greater, wider effect of people being interested. Um, everything that I do in, in terms of the diversified, uh, educational things are, is based on that. <laughs> so so. An, an opportunity for impact on a greater number of people. Yeah. But, uh, demand driven. I don't just, I don't, I, tr- I try never to just shout into the void of like, here's this thing. I buy it. And, and one person bought it one or two people buy it the first month. And then one person buys it the next month. You have to be going in the, the larger direction where you're still aware that it's generating excitement and, and, buzz and, and word of mouth buzz is the most important thing. Uh, and it's, it's the hardest thing to keep track of. I'm the least aware, <laughs> I often feel, of my own relative position in the industry and the things that I do. But I try and have a sense of it so that I know if it's, it's trending uh, larger or 
not going anywhere. <laughs> so, What would you say about, uh, and, and I know you've been in education for a while, but to, to those photographers who are just now beginning to consider the possibility of, of getting into education, whether it's online courses or teaching workshops or otherwise as an additional source of income, what would you say to them as it relates to this conversation that, that we were involved in earlier regarding brand position and standing out? Because, you know, when, when every other photographer, you go to their Instagram profile and it says something to the effect of, you know, photographer, teacher, and yeah. lover of coffee or something like that. Like everybody kind of sounds the same these days. And, and yeah. again, I, I will put the everybody in quotes, but so many photographers are in the education space. I want, I have a tendency as a business owner to want to go to a space that's not crowded uh, yeah. for the sake of greater opportunity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the first question you got to ask yourself as I drink my coffee here, um, <laughs> which I do love. But I'm not crazy about in terms of like some of the some of the people go go deep on the coffee <laughs> obsession uh, is OK. The first thing I'd say if you're considering being an educator or even if you are is uh, do people actually ask you questions about your photos? Do you mm. often get people asking, how did you do that? What's going on? Uh, if, if not, then I I hardly think that your approach and and output as a photographer warrants much <laughs> um, explanation. Like Fair, you, yeah. so many people see other photographers doing it and think that they'll make a little extra money. So why not? I'll just teach what I do. But if at its core in your first three or four years of shooting, you don't have people saying, oh my God, how did you do that? Or how do you always get this? Or how, what, how, how, how? Uh, then it's probably not the right space for you. The second thing I think immediately started drifting towards it was even if you do get those questions, you need to be confident that you are capable of breaking things down and explaining it thoroughly, mm. uh, explaining it as a teacher. It is a different uh, craft, a different skill set entirely yes. to teaching photography. And I see this, the uh, first thing I think of is YouTube, where it's so funny. People are fantastic teachers. They make, they're fantastic at making videos, blah, blah, blah. But they're, they're actually crappy photographers and it works the other way around. There are mm. people that are incredible photographers yep. that have no business uh, teaching yep. and charging for it because the, the ideas don't distill and, and actually change the people that they are teaching into having new perspectives and implementing things. And, and so, yeah, uh, not that I'm always amazing at that all the time, but I mean, you know, I've done 50, 60 workshops at this point and uh, I've gotten enough feedback from people that I am a good teacher. And so I lean into that and love also um, just on a personal level, I'm deeply fulfilled and satisfied uh, by mm. the process of teaching. And I learn a lot for myself. Like once you actually sit down and have something you want to instruct on the process of, how am I going to teach this? You, you learn so much about the why for yourself. You already know the how, but the, the why is also critical. Um, and, and going through the teaching process illuminates that more than anything. So. Yeah, I'm glad that you highlight the, the significance of needing to be a teacher. I, I made notes here as you were talking about really the two kind of primary criteria being number one, is there a demand? And two, are you objectively capable as a teacher? That yeah. There are, you know, I've, I've been, and I'm sure you have as well for, again, close to two decades for me personally, going to WPPI and PPA and, and all these conferences and workshops. And the number of times that you have a super talented photographer get up there that has absolutely no idea how to teach or how to even put together a slide and communicate in such a way that, that people are actually following 
what they're saying and not distracted by the, you know, the 58 paragraphs on the slide. And, and of course, the list goes on. <laughs> I, I wish that there was some kind of proactive effort in our industry to help those talented photographers that have information to share, learn how to teach better, because I, I think it's necessary. But I think these are really important questions that, that everybody should ask instead of just by default saying, oh, I should, I should be an educator. I should start an online course. I'm pretty apprehensive when I hear, when I'm talking to photographers these days, and that's the thing that pops up so quickly. And I, I actually, at this point, kind of tend to push back a little bit, um, just yeah. because I, I would hate for that space to continue to get even more crowded, certainly by those that aren't in the greatest position to be teaching anyway. But I, the last thing that I would want is for another photographer to get burnt out, getting into a space that's overly crowded when they don't have something unique to offer. I, I have to say too, and I, for those of you listening in, if you haven't seen Sam's Instagram feed, um, I, you, know, you talk about having something unique to offer or more specifically creating work that begs questions. Um, mm-hmm. I'm scrolling through your Instagram feed here and I, I've got 50,000 questions um, just looking through <laughs> your feed. Great. So wow. I mean, major in all seriousness, though, major props to you for actually practicing what you preach um, because the creativity shines through. And, and I think this really kind of is a great segue to my next question, which is, um, I, I mean, you've you're involved in the sale of presets and, and using pick time to sell products to clients and Stocksy to sell stock photos. That's a whole topic in and of itself that I would love to get into. But for the sake of time today, I, I want to focus on Patreon. You mentioned earlier that you create this content on Patreon for your Patreon subscribers and, and answer these questions. How did you decide to even use that platform in the first place versus you know focusing exclusively on just releasing online courses? Yes. So I'm heavily influenced by an on, uh, ongoing uh, tech blogger. His name is uh, Ben. Oh my gosh. Ben Thompson is his last name. Okay. He runs a, a tech blog called Stratechery. Uh, spelled, I think, exactly how it sounds, Stratechery. And he's, first of all, incredibly smart. <laughs> and I just really um, resonate with his style of writing and particularly his podcast called Exponent. Okay. They're not as active with the podcast anymore, but I think I probably started listening to him around 2015 and he uh, just blogs commentary, uh, regular commentary on the tech industry at large and it's kind of its influence on say society. And, and it's just, I highly recommend it, but he has a, his business model is 10 bucks a month and you get access to all of his daily update articles. And then once a week, he writes an incredibly long article that's free for everybody. So he's kind of getting new eyeballs on these really long in-depth things. And then uh, for people that want to pay, they get a daily uh, dose of, of what his thoughts are. I love it. I love it. And and what I realized, his, his uh, emphasis, I remember listening when he uh, made a podcast episode about his first 1,000, or he, he just hit 1,000 subscribers and how big a deal that was for him. And, you know, the, the I don't know who says it, but it's commonly said that, like, you know, if you have 1,000 true fans, you you have a sustainable, potentially sustainable business model. Yep. And I, I became fixated on this as an idea. And I was thinking, okay, well, I guess I could build a website and share more of my reviews and insights as it relates to photography on my website and put up a paywall, but I just don't have time. I'm teaching still a lot of in-person workshops and shooting 40 weddings a year. What I just want something out of the box that could do a lot of that for me. And I was listening to yet another podcast called Hello Internet that has a Patreon uh, that they were promoting. And I realized, okay, Patreon has done all of the, the heavy lifting in terms of creating a hosted solution for monthly recurring subscriptions. 
it's existed, I think, through 2012. And um, by the way, I've lost track of sort of what your original question was, but hopefully I'm still chipping away at it. Yeah, absolutely. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> uh, Patreon uh, did all the heavy lifting to where I could literally blink this new potential revenue stream into existence overnight. Hmm. So I signed up, took about a month, you know, working out the mechanics and like, okay, what are these tiers? I need to say, how much did I charge? I don't Took about a month. I launched at $10 a month and one tier and uh, just started posting to that, that tier and then cross promoting to my wider audience. Like, Hey, I wrote this entire review about a bag that I'm using. Uh, Here it is. And then people were immediately hit with a paywall and I got so much hate. (laughs) It's like, this is so dumb. Why are, why do we have to pay $10 for this review of a bag here are 50 youtubers right. that have reviewed the exact same bag right. and they hey guess what they do it way better than you do sam <laughs> it's like i paid the 10 bucks and you suck <laughs> yeah, wow. not, literally, not not that bad but a ton of pushback sure i uh I, I started thinking you know against myself like oh, okay yeah this is maybe this isn't gonna work if every time i i promote that i posted on something on patreon i get hate and pushback for it that's just not fun but i kept at it i kept I became honestly quite obsessed with Patreon and, and what kinds of things I could uh, post there. And uh, eventually, you know, I started to realize like, oh, you know what, this is, this is interesting. And, and month two, now I don't just have that one bag review. I've got 20 other things that I posted about, um, uh, you know, before and after raw files with actual raw files. And, and by the way, I would never really share raw files before, but now I've got this sort of walled garden where I'm a little more comfortable uh, sharing things that, I, you know, to, to people that are willing to pay for it because that, that friction is there, that, um, that barrier feels, makes me feel a little more protected. Uh, and not just because of the money, but just fit, the Google, wider Google or potential, you know, clients or previous clients don't see everything that I'm exposing. Not that that's bad, but you know, sometimes you feel self-conscious or whatever. So now people signing up month two, they're, they get access to everything that's ever been posted. Mm. So they, they sign up, they're instantly charged and that $10 or whatever, but now they get access to 20 posts versus the person that signed up on day one that only got access to one post for the same amount of money. So I started to realize like there's a compounding, value uh, that's occurring here that the longer, the more content I post, the better deal that it gets, the more it fosters growth and people coming across a post that maybe five of them they're not interested in, but one of them they really are. And it's worth that 10 bucks just for it. And slowly, I, you know, I kind of just became self-motivated to, to keep at it. And I'd say right around month six or seven, I started to realize like, oh, I'm actually making a thousand dollars a month that I wasn't before sharing stuff that I'm kind of sharing anyway on my blog or on Instagram. Like, this is great. Now I'm actually getting paid for it. And now I'm uh, motivated to keep the people that are active there uh, staying there and coming up with all kinds of other uh, ways to, to do that and get people excited about just supporting me and truly taking deep dives and discussing things in a way that evolves. That's the key thing for me. I hated the idea of writing a book or creating a discrete course on posing because, and I felt this even in my workshops, they would evolve. I would give one workshop one week and the next week I would have self-adjusted because Mm. maybe I learned something in a discussion with somebody who asked a question and in that trying to clarify something, I actually realized, uh, no, I need to adjust my answer a little bit, whatever. What you do as a creative is a constant evolution. Hopefully, Hopefully. if I'm I'm ever stagnant, you know, 
that's a signal that I, I probably need to do something else. Sure. And so um, that's what I love about Patreon. It's an ongoing feed of content that does evolve over time. And that's one of the things Ben uh, eventually started realizing about his own blog. Uh, he would constantly be asked, like, why don't you write a book, write a book about aggregation theory, which is his concept of uh, this. It's just a theory that he's, he's created. And he's like, no, I'm just going to blog about it <laughs> on my site. And why is a book any better than that? Hmm. You might get a, a, a you know quick shot of, of sales and then, yeah, you can write another book and I can understand that, but I think it's much more exciting in a lot of ways for the person uh, doing the work to have it be an evolution. And, you know, I, I've been talking uh, for a few minutes now, so cut me off whenever you get a chance. But the 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 um, mechanism of Patreon is also it really aligns well with how I'm incentivized. When people are charged again, recurring on the first of the month, uh, I get a lot of people leaving. Uh, either because their budget changed, their card expired, they weren't happy with what I was posting, or maybe the the volume or consistency that I was posting at whatever reason, I feel motivated to get them back. The very next post that I make, I want to have them regretting that they left. Like <laughs> it's very motivating for me. Yeah, yeah. Plus, the people that stuck around are then winning as well. They are getting a higher quality product uh, over time, and yeah, that's. You know, there's just so many positive things. And now as a self-employed person for the first time in my life, I have predictable revenue Mm. changes a lot of your thinking and and makes things a little, little more comfortable, which actually I think could be a bad thing for some people's creative process. Um, But uh, for me, it's, it's been great as you know, and it's sort of provided given who would have thought, but I sort of pandemic proofed or at least heavily pandemic insulated uh, my my income streams and my revenue streams due to the coronavirus, where suddenly I was having almost all my weddings rescheduled to next year. Uh, I still had Patreon revenue, though it has trended downward noticeably uh, this year, as I think photographers are tightening their budgets or whatever. Right. Um, it, it has sustained me well, and it's nice. <laughs> it's it's. I don't have that outside stress. Uh, again, something that was so, I'm so grateful to have been well positioned with, I will teach you to be rich, uh, setting me up for kind of, a principled approach to managing my money, right. uh, relieving that stress does so much good for your creative process. Again, Patreon has, has paid me back in the same way. It's relieved a lot of that financial stress. And there are a ton of problems that, you know, me talking about Patreon as much as I do, uh, a lot of photographers might go out and be like, oh, I'm going to start one. And I'm going to make some extra money. It's going to be great. But it's it's a huge amount of work, uh, especially in the early um, months. I mean, it's like three to six months of, of obsession at least. Right. And even then you're kind of shouting into the void for a long time, unless you already have a very well-established audience in sort of the education area in some way, uh, it's going to take a lot of effort. I've seen huge photographers start and be at it for a year and they've got, you know, 20 patrons still. Right. Um, you really have to think of it as an entirely new job. Uh, but in my perspective, it's a, it's a good job. It's a fun job. I love it, but it's not for everybody. And, and Patreon itself doesn't, it's not a photographer's platform. It's not a photographer's education platform. It's a, it's a place that uh, or it was founded by a musician, uh, a guy by the name of Jack Conti, who invested tons of money and made a music video and got like 200 bucks for it after millions of views or something like that. He, he didn't come anywhere close. Uh, he, he was right in, uh, in identifying that the model was broken for creatives uh, in terms of doing this in a sustainable, proper way as a business. 
Uh, so he started Patreon and it's, it's not even geared well towards musicians and their content. It sort of tries to accommodate everybody. And in that there's a lot of problems, but at its core uh, purpose and functionality, I'm a big believer. I love it. It's, it's great. You mentioned a, a couple of people there. Uh, first of all, Jack Conti. If for those of you listening and you've never looked at or watched any of Jack's content, um, the creativity that goes into to making the videos that he posts his YouTube channel. I don't follow him on Instagram, but um, I'm just super impressed. You know, in a day and age where the format of of video content on YouTube, in particular, is relatively predictable. Um, with occasional exceptions, of course. Um, Jack just really inspired me when it came to that level of creativity that he was putting into his content. Um, so that's a little aside. We'll link to his YouTube channel uh, in the show notes at bocapodcast.com. We also mentioned Ben Thompson, Stratechery. It's S-T-R-A-T-E-C-H-E-R-Y.com. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. I am curious, Sam, you, you talked about that initial apprehension that photographers had to give you money to get the content that you were creating. Was there something in particular or a couple of principles that drove of what you did to change uh, your approach to add more value? Or was it just a matter of giving it time for them to understand the significance of what you were offering? Uh, the first 10 or so patrons that signed up, once I realized, okay, I, that's fine. That, that Your opinion is that I'm an idiot and this is bad marketing and this is ridiculous. Uh, but, but once I realized like that, that opinion can exist, but also other opinions exist that I got 10 people to pay me, you know, 10 bucks about a bag to review. So that scaled way higher than the one comment, the one negative comment or yeah. however many, I got a couple, <laughs> but uh, you know, so, some, somebody there was a believer and uh, yeah, I quickly got, I would say to a couple hundred people. So I knew that, you know, even, and at the end of the day, I was making like 500 bucks in the first couple months pretty easily uh, by just posting stuff that I gladly would have posted for free on my blog anyway. Uh, so if nothing else, I might as well just make it like an early release thing, which occasionally I do for some content, but uh, the vast majority of everything's locked down and only available on Patreon. So it was those initial um, uh, investments that made me realize you, you gotta you gotta push back. And, and oftentimes when you are getting criticism, there's a friction occurring somewhere in in process that uh, you know where friction exists, value can generally be extracted. <laughs> uh, it's that's a, a weird way to describe it, but yeah, I, I think. Why it can be as simple as somebody saying, why is Sam charging $10 for this one mm. review when yep. everybody else does it for free? I want to check this out and yeah. see. <laughs> and then you go down the rabbit hole and hopefully you, the other cool thing about it, and I'm getting back in, in a ranty mode a bit here, but uh, one thing I really love is that uh, with a discrete course, so, hey, popcorn, uh, with a discrete course that you might charge a couple hundred bucks for or whatever about a particular topic, it's so saturated and so like long in its content that you tend to miss the little things. Mm. And now I can make an entire post for that day or whatever on Patreon. That is all about one tiny little thing, like minimizing the histogram and how it doubles the, the speed and operation of Lightroom wow. or somebody might miss that singular sentence or comment yeah. in the larger workshop of workflow. I can make a, a, a post about it. I love Sorry. that. No, no, no worries at all. No, specificity in content too, because there is so much out there and, and people's attention spans tend to be relatively short these days. It, it's uh, That's a really interesting point. I do want to kind of just kind of sum up the conversation though, because you've offered just a wonderful variety of perspective, not only to this topic, but some of those that we addressed earlier. But for those listening in who are curious about this notion of diversifying their income, 
Um, I, I jotted down a, a few questions here, a couple of which we already alluded to or mentioned. One, as you're considering a potential second or third stream of income, is there demand for that particular thing that you're considering? Secondly, are you objectively capable of delivering on that particular service or product? Or if not, do you at least have the ability to be able to, to learn relatively quickly in order to make that happen? Um, third, and I, these are a couple of additional notes that I that I made as you were talking, Sam, um, can the additional stream of income be generated efficiently? Because, you know, I again, I'm not the greatest multitasker in the world. I, I make it happen. Um, if in an ideal world, I would focus on one thing all the time that, that I tend to be a kind of an all or nothing guy. But I know that most photographers are are probably pretty busy if they're doing photography full time with that photography business. And the idea of adding an additional stream of income and all the work that might go along with it could be really, really challenging. So efficiency, uh, even if it's not innately efficient to begin with, figuring out a workflow that enables them to work efficiently in that. So it's not adding a significant amount of stress in the process of adding additional income. Uh, I think that's something really super important to consider. And then you also mentioned the word sustainable. Uh, I think there toward the mm-hmm. end. That's something else to think about too, because I, I know personally when I start a new project or a new business, I'm super excited about this new thing that I'm getting ready to start. And then once I get into it, I'm like, oh, I got to do this and I got to do that. The question is whether or not this particular business is sustainable, not only from a financial standpoint and a demand standpoint, but also from an effort standpoint, just on a day-to-day basis. I think that's also something important to consider. Can you just comment on that, that last idea briefly here before we finish up? Yeah, uh, you said it so perfectly. This is great. I've never had somebody actually take notes while I was talking. (laughs) It's so nice (laughs) to be able to come full circle and flush things out and ideas uh, in a more rich way. I love that. So, um, gosh, I don't even know where to start, but I I wanted to interject when you were talking about uh, not just sustainability, but the, um, oh, my ADD is kicking me. Efficiency? The efficiency. Uh, Okay, or uh, at least... Being honest with yourself and constantly rigor, like just always looking for what is that thing that I am most consistently putting on the back burner. Mm. That uh, you know, can can I outsource that? Being honest with yourself about whether or not you're going to be timely, and if it weighs on you, uh, usually there's several things that that kind of fit into this category, and that weight will start to crush you. <laughs> You've got to figure out ways of either one changing it up enough that it makes it fun, whatever it is, yeah. or you're able to outsource it in a way that the money is well spent, that the ROI actually makes you more money because you spend your time doing something else that is more valuable. Um, you've got to be always like, don't whatever piece of software you signed up for that is doing some task uh, in in your workflow, maybe it wasn't the best one. And you need to be honest with yourself about when those cases surface, uh, you know, over a couple months of whatever. I'm trying to think of a good example here, whatever it is. Uh, You just got to be honest with yourself about whether or not it's, it's weighing you down or if it's motivating or if you're staying motivated and, and engaged in, in what, the activity is. Um, again, for me, the, the monthly billing cycle of Patreon is the biggest thing that um, kind of motivates me. And, and also they, they have these cool little like milestone goal setting things where if you, you can either make it financial based or just the sheer number of patrons, patrons actively pledge. That's always a great motivator for me in terms of like sustainable stuff. Uh, like, how do I put this? Uh, I can say like, okay, if I reach 20 patrons this month and I'm yeah. at 15, I'll, I'll, make a post about I don't know, something that I'm excited about. And if I tend to get one or two new people signing up, that, that signals to me that I've, this thing is desirable. Uh, and if I, 
you know, succeed at the goal, it feels really great for me and for the people pledging because they're like, oh, I was the 20th person that you know contributed to this. It's, it's, it's sort of community building in some way, but it's just, I don't know, the incentives are aligned properly. I'm, I, I love the phrase incentive alignment and what mm. things you do in your life that motivate you to do better. And yeah, and, and looking for those tools that enable that. <laughs> well, and then it's so, a win-win for everybody, right? I mean, the, yeah. you, you benefit for obvious reasons, but then the, the end consumer is also benefiting because you are inspired. You're creating content that's actually valuable. You have um, to be careful though, because I also get in my own head sort of arguments with myself about like, oh, okay. So the same month that I m- might make you know, X thousands of dollars on Patreon. I might make the exact same amount, but do half the work for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, because I wasn't inspired enough. I didn't have enough good ideas or maybe I'm just tired or whatever. And that can feel weird. But at the end of the day, you have to realize just the, the, the internet has kind of flipped so much on its head. It's still $10 for everybody. And it doesn't take that much to deliver on $10 of value. Even if me as the creator, I'm not making this much, but if if some people are, if you're making $100,000 in a month from your Patreon content, it's still $10 for the people that of worth of content that you're um, held accountable to. But for your own brain, it's a hundred thousand. So it seems sort of crazy, (laughs) Uh, but you kind of have to get over that and figure out, um, ways to, to fight the, your, your potential change in perspective and the, the pressure you might put on yourself if you do start to uh, get some success. So anyway, well, I, th- I think when we talk about sustainability, it's not just about whether or not the effort is sustainable, but also the question again, that those of you listening in should be asking yourself as you're considering a possible additional stream of income, a, a different business uh, or additional business is that, are you able to sustainably add value to yes, those right. that you'll be serving. That's, that's been a big challenge for me at the podcast because it's super easy to create, uh, or at least relatively easy to create a ton of content. At the end of the day, I want to make sure that the end consumer, i.e. Our, our wonderful listeners, are actually walking away with something of value, even if it's a tiny little thing, something that's actionable that they can go do you know, something with in their business that's going to in some way benefit them. That's my end goal. And and yeah. the question we should be asking is, can we sustainably deliver that? One of the ways that we've done that here at the podcast is to kind of dig in, to drill down two, three, four layers on a particular topic. You know, we might have covered, let's just say at a, at a top level, 30,000 foot view, you know, maybe 10 different topics, but we've done it in hundreds of different ways. And that's what enabled us to create a variety of content, which has made it scalable, which has made it sustainable. And I think I honestly, I poorly answered the sustainability part of that, but it did pop into my head exactly where I, I want to take it. The, the thing I get from everybody who I'm like, oh, you should start a Patreon. Trust me, do it. Uh, they say, well, you know, I have like a month's worth of content that I could probably do, but you know, what do I do after that? I don't know. I can't come up with three years of content and neither could I. My Patreon has existed for almost four years now. I did not have four years, not even close to that in mind when I started. But if you create feedback loops in your process, Patreon has an exit survey so people can tell you why mm. they left. Yeah. Uh, people participate in comments and I encourage that under every post. Give me feedback about your questions. The content you start with will start enabling the content you continue on with. As long as you've got that feedback loop occurring. When you have a discrete course, I mean, maybe some people do, but I hardly, I, I doubt it. Not the ones I've ever uh, purchased myself. Uh, when you sell a discrete course, it's just sold and then you might get some feedback or some reviews about it, but it's not an ongoing conversation mm. with the people you're teaching. Yeah. 
generally. And so the Patreon, again, it's, it's, I hate the word community, but uh, it's sort of a community in that people are active in the comments or do message me directly asking questions about other things. So posts that you start with will enable, inform, and, and uh, you know, hopefully um, pollinate all the other ideas that will come later you're receptive. And, and that's also really tough because a lot of the uh, feedback that is going to turn into some of the best content is a critique or a pushback against what you've done. And so that can make you feel like you did something bad or you created something not valuable. But as long as you're willing to accept that criticism, it can turn into, again, this ev- evolving sort of uh, content, which makes itself sustainable. No, <laughs> but you have to so you have true. to create that cycle. Yeah, yeah. But, but and you have to be open to it. And I think yeah. about ego, I guess because it's it's a thing that I've had to work at on an ongoing basis. I'm 41 now and and it's still a it's something that I have to work on at different levels of my life personally, professionally. We have to set ego aside though in order to be open enough to get feedback whatever the platform, whatever the context in order to continue to improve. I personally, one of my values literally is listed on the home screen of my phone is growth. I want to continue to grow. And and to your earlier point, Sam, the last thing that I would want to do is become stagnant in such a way that my personal relationships suffer, my business suffers, because I I get so caught up in my own ideas that I'm not open to the possibility of change for the better. So I I think that's a really great way to, to round out the conversation and sum up the conversation. Will you remind all of our listeners where not only they can follow you online, but also where they can find you on Patreon as well? Yeah, uh, sure. My Patreon is patreon.com slash Sam Hurd, and that's H-U-R-D. Patreon is spelled like patron, but with an E wedged in there. I wonder how they came up with that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so patreon.com slash Sam Hurd, and the most active place that I am kind of socially on the internet is uh, Instagram for sure. So Instagram uh, handle is I am the Sam, which the longer time goes on, the more my ego feels like that was like, I hate, I, I am Sam is always taken. That'd be my preferred. I just added <laughs> the, it sounds full of myself. And you know, it's really even more ridiculous that I regret more over time is my podcast is called the Epic Podcast. And it's like, oh my God, the more, the more time goes on. I'm like, I sound like the most full of myself person, but honestly, uh, the, the, uh, the Epic Thing that I tend to brand with a lot uh, came from a friend of mine. He was like, oh, that is epic. You should call this the Epic Portrait Series, which is an early series that I did at yeah. the press club. And so it just stuck and I just stuck with it. But the more time goes on, the more I'm like, man, I wonder how many people I'm turning away with this. Like, <laughs> I am the Sam. Really? Are you? <laughs> I, well, I'm looking at about 100,000 followers. So I don't think you've done too bad a job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we'll link to your podcast, your Instagram, Patreon, website, all of it in the show notes, bocapodcast.com. Um, Thanks once again, Sam. I, I mean, the, the conversation has been super fun, free flowing. Uh, and your perspective has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much, photographers, for listening to the Boca podcast. Will you let us know what you thought of the show by leaving a review of the podcast in the Apple podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast and suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My email is nathan at bocapodcast.com. Make sure to visit our sponsors, photographersedit.com, custom photo editing for the professional photographer, and milu.com, that's M-I-I-L-U.com, the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing.